I was thinking about what to preach since today is Father's Day, um, since my father's in the room, and I thought I would diverge from 1 Corinthians and say, uh, how do you honor your father and mother whenever you are 10 times cooler than your father will ever be? That is the title of my sermon this morning. Kidding, it's not. Uh, Don't worry. Um, You may have noticed during our scripture reading that Uh, Usually, we are reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, That is what the church has sort of adopted. This week, I'm preaching from the Christian Standard Bible. There's not a real reason for it. I don't have any beef with the ESV. Uh, I just tend to use the CSB in my own personal study, and so I feel a little more comfortable in it. Um, And that is why it might have sounded a little different than your translation. That said, uh, we have a ton of background to cover today, uh, so you better... Buckle in. Uh, Before we get to the text, however, would you please uh, pray with me? Um, This might be a little weird because we don't usually do this, but if you'll pray, uh, actually just pray for me. This has been a very busy week. As as Ryan said, Corey and I went to the SBC. I had to write a class, had to write a sermon, all this stuff. Um, And and while I feel like um, the Spirit has definitely worked in the preparation for that time and been uh, gracious, um, I would love your prayers. Um, So just pray silently among yourselves that God would soften our hearts um, as we receive his word, um, and then I will close us corporately. So let's pray. God, you are so good to us. As we have gone through these first nine chapters of 1 Corinthians, the word that you spoke through your apostle Paul, we have learned how to live as a church. And I pray that today your spirit would prick our hearts. I pray that we would feel the gravity of this text, and I pray that you would, by renewing our minds, unveil your scriptures' truth to us. Let us cultivate uh, the seeds of the spiritual understanding that were received by Paul. I pray that we would know your gospel, that you would meet us as we seek to feast upon your word this morning, written down many years ago, but alive, active, breathing, and working still today. It is in Christ's holy name I pray, amen. In the last year or so, I've grown increasingly convinced that the most crucial passage for understanding how to read the Bible is a very simple story that comes after Jesus' resurrection. Commonly, we refer to this scene as the encounter on the Emmaus Road. John Baer, who is a theologian that is actually the advisor for my master's program, so in the next several years, two years, I guess. You'll probably hear me talk about him a lot. Uh, He calls what happens on the road to Emmaus probably the most striking aspect of the first three Gospels. The reality that having witnessed Jesus's miracles and following him closely for years, his disciples can't even recognize him whenever he confronts them on the road. In fact, they even begin to tell Jesus his very own story how he had lived a powerful life and he was handed over to death and how his tomb was reported empty by a group of women. And Jesus responds to them by lifting the veil, answering them, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
The disciples knew the scriptures well, but they couldn't recognize the scripture's subject, Christ. The Gospel of Luke tells us that it isn't until Jesus reclines with his disciples and he blesses and breaks bread with them that their eyes are opened to recognize him. And the scene concludes with them racing to tell the others what had happened. The scriptures say that they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, this isn't a sermon on Luke 24. We are in 1 Corinthians 10 after all. Don't worry. But I do think that what Paul does here is very similar to what Jesus does in uh, Luke 24. That he uses the Old Testament scriptures to lift the veil and to show how Jesus makes himself known to us in right eating, in the breaking of bread, which is his resurrected body. In fact, I think that this theme of right eating is sort of central at the very heart of Paul's instructions in this section, this larger section of 1 Corinthians. If you'll remember, in 1 Corinthians 8, he began a discourse about eating food that was offered to idols. Paul more or less concludes that because they neither believed nor worshipped the gods that this food had been sacrificed to in the meat markets, that they were free to eat it if they so wished. However, he's given a condition to be careful that this right in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, Paul gives them a freedom from legalism in eating and also a freedom from license in eating. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul goes on to use his own life as a demonstration of what it means to live in that tension, how he bears the title of apostle and how he clings to the gospel rather than abusing his individual rights, how he does not allow himself to be enslaved to anything other than Christ alone. And throughout that section, he continually alludes to whether or not those temple sacrifices can be eaten in good conscience. Today, we will see that Paul continues this theme of right eating and drinking by reflecting on the history of Israel in the wilderness. And I assume in two to four weeks or so, we will see that he continues this theme of right eating and right drinking as he discusses the importance of proper observance of the Lord's Supper. Now, up front, I want to make an apology to you and then offer two observations about this week's passage. And as you guys know, apologies from pastors are usually never a good thing. I'm not a pastor. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. Preachers. Apologies from preachers. Whoever is preaching is usually not a good thing. However, uh, Paul does not, here's the apology. Paul does not treat these topics in a neat or orderly fashion. That's all. So don't worry, not planning on going like an hour and a half, not planning on making everything complicated. It's simply that Paul doesn't lay it out clearly for us. I'm convinced that the argument's there, and I'm convinced that the reading that I'm going to give you this morning of how to understand this text is the intended one, but because we aren't Jewish people in the first century, we won't immediately pick up on some of his subtle references that he is making to his audience. Sometimes he pulls from one section to uh, speak to a later section or talks about something in one verse that he echoes again later in a verse. And so while I would love to get you a super straightforward point-by-point alliterated outline like a good Baptist would usually do, I'm not going to do that this morning. 
But I think whenever we get past these two observations about the text, you'll understand why, and it won't be that confusing. So first, the first observation is, for how much time Paul spends focus on the stories from Israel's past, notice that he only uses one direct quote from the Old Testament, and it's found in 1 Corinthians 10, 7. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. This quote is from Exodus 32, when the people of Israel are punished for fashioning a golden calf. If you aren't familiar or can't remember, uh, they have been led out of Egypt from their slavery. Uh, They're brought into the wilderness. Moses enters the cloud, ascends a mountain, and he stays up there for 40 days conversing with God as he receives the law. In their impatience, the people of Israel assume that Moses maybe died, maybe he got lost, maybe he got taken up with God, who knows? So they grow impatient and they say, hey, we should form a golden calf out of our jewelry. The book of Exodus tells us that they built an offer to it and they burnt offerings and then they sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. And commentators and scholars suggest that because Paul quoted this verse directly, it's probably the central focus of his argument. While he might be alluding to other passages, he took the effort and energy to quote this specific one, and let's be honest, it's not really a super eventful one. He's talking about eating and drinking and partying. However, I think that that just reinforces the idea that his focus here is how do we eat and drink rightly? Like we said, we'd already seen the Corinthians fighting over whether or not they could eat this meat sacrificed to idols, so it would make sense that Paul would quote this verse. It's an Old Testament example of God's people abusing the feast to dishonor God. The second observation I want to make is that Paul tells us how he wants us to understand this text. I told a friend as I was writing the sermon that this might be one of the easiest sermons I ever wrote because Paul literally tells us, point blank, what he wants us to take away from it. In verse 6, he says that these Old Testament narratives of the Exodus took place as an example for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. And then he reinforces that in verse 11, saying that these things happened to them as examples and that they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. One author says it this way, Paul's quotation from Exodus, by coaxing the reader to recall the golden calf story, links the Corinthian dilemma, whether to eat meat offered to idols, to the larger and older story of Israel in the wilderness. So in this passage we're spending time in this morning, what Paul is doing is he's actually trying to show these new covenant Christians that the Old Testament Israelites faced the same problems as them. That that was, in a sense, very much so their fathers. That they are intrinsically connected and that God's standard is unchanging. Paul is trying to be as clear as he possibly can. The God of these Old Testament stories is the same God we confess today. And because of that, these stories serve as an example for us. We can begin with the historical stories of Israel, understanding that they contain inside them a deeper spiritual and ethical implication. And so, the message God has for us is that he does not reward undue feasts. He will not honor celebrations that are dishonoring to him and his holy name. There is a proper way to eat and drink, 
and there is a proper way to live. And it doesn't involve eating from a posture of dishonor or partying in a way irrespective of God's law. Instead, God wrote human history in such a way that we would be able to see that these things point us to Christ, who was the perfect sacrifice, who offers us his body and his blood and meets us in the breaking of bread. So in light of all this, I think it's helpful to frame Paul's central concern in 1 Corinthians 10 as a question. How do we, as Christians, feast in the midst of an unfaithful culture? Like the Israelites, we are today living in the wilderness, seeking to follow God. And like the disciples on the Emmaus Road, Jesus is still willing and able to meet us in the breaking of bread. Paul is teaching us how to feast on the body and blood of Christ while living as a pilgrim in an alien land. The text today offers what I'm going to call a negated reading of the stories of Israel to challenge the Corinthian church to obedience. And all I mean by that phrase is that he uses them as a poor example. He doesn't try to show us what they did right. He instead shows us what they did wrong and gives instructions for us on how to avoid it. He offers several negated readings from Israel's past and then through this implies two ethical commands. And they are very short and simple, but I think you will see that they are wrapped up with spiritual significance. The first is we are commanded to feast in a worthy manner. And then the second is that we are commanded to live in a worthy manner. These two, I think we will see, maintain a reciprocal relationship that right feasting empowers right living and right living enables right feasting. And before I lose you with all this talk of living and feasting, let's jump into the text and see what Paul actually says. So as I mentioned, he begins with the story of the Exodus. This would have been familiar to Paul's audience. It was the very guiding narrative of Israel. It is the thing that defined the works of God in his chosen people. It would have been immediately recognizable to the Corinthians, but since we're a little less familiar, uh, it would probably serve us well to turn to Exodus 14, beginning in verse 19. This is where Paul, or Paul, Moses offers a, a two-part description of what Paul references here. So beginning in verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptians and the Israelite forces. There was a cloud and darkness. It lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back the sea with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. Then a few chapters over in Exodus 17, we can see where Moses strikes the rock and water comes from it. Paul references this story. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them, why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. 
They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with, with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they will stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. And when you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. The Israelites had been freed from their captivity. They followed Moses' leadership out of Israel or out of Egypt and continued to be led under the cloud, the parted Red Sea, and then to the rock that gave them the water they needed. God delivers them. He provides food and drink for them. And tragically, in Exodus 32, we see their true heart. Moses left the people of Israel alone for too long. So they take their gold and fashion it into a golden calf, claiming that this was the God that had delivered them. Aaron builds an altar and they burn offerings. And as Paul quotes, they sat down to eat and drink and get up to party. Now, Paul says that these things took place as examples for us. And it's one of the only places in the New Testament where Paul uses this word that is uh, translated commonly as types or examples or whatever. Uh, So it's worth paying especially close attention to. In verses 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul emphasizes the unity of the Israelites, right? He says that they all were under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea, that they all ate the same spiritual food, all ate the same spiritual drink. And then in verses 1 and 2, he shows the acts that they did in that united state. He says that they all were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And he says very provocatively that this was a kind of baptism. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says that they ate the same spiritual food and all ate the same spiritual drink. And I don't know if you're beginning to pick up on what the imagery might be here, uh, but he's referencing the picture of communion, of gathering together around the Lord's table, sharing the same spiritual bread and wine in remembrance of God's work. And Paul's use of the word all over and over again emphasizes the corporate nature of this, likening passing, passing through the sea with baptism and sharing similar meals as communion. Consider the other Old Testament scenes he pulls from. Paul mentions the rock that follows the Israelites and says that it's Christ. And we've already seen that first instance in the book of Exodus. But in Numbers 20, we see another scene with a rock providing water. The entire Israelite community entered into the wilderness of Zin in the first month and settled in Kadesh. Miriam died and was buried there. There was no water for the community, so they assembled against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and, our, and for our livestock to die here? Why have you led us up from Egypt and brought us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain, figs, vines, and pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And then later in this chapter, in verse 11, Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff so that abundant water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. 
But Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me to demonstrate my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, I will not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. The Israelites' destruction by snakes mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10 is found in Numbers 21. The scriptures say that they set out from Mount Hot by way of the Red Sea. That may have been a typo. I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I'm reading from my manuscript. Uh, If the mount is named something crazy in your Bible and I just totally butchered it, just ignore it. They set out by way of the Red Sea bypass to the land of Edom, but the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke out against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then Yahweh sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them, so many Israelites died. Despite the fact the Israelites had come together in fellowship through the food and drink provided to them by God, they did not truly commune with one another. They were a dissatisfied and a stiff-necked people, seeking their own preservation. The people of Israel may have been followed by a rock, yes, but they did not yield to the providence of God in providing their sustenance. They didn't understand that they were being given something more significant than physical needs being met, that they were being given a spiritual drink that would enable them to never thirst again. They had forgotten the God that met them at the Passover. It's the same problem that the disciples had on the Emmaus Road. They had not truly seen the lamb who was sacrificed on their behalf so that they would be led out of Egypt. So how do we feast in a worthy manner? We begin by declaring the lordship of Christ, by not becoming idolaters, by recognizing and remembering that God has met us. The bread has been broken, and he makes himself known to us through it. Do not be like the Israelites and forgetting the God who is bringing you to your salvation. Do not sit down to eat and drink at the Lord's table with a spirit of idolatry like the people did before their golden calf. Instead, feast with a proper disposition, humility and submission to God who has made a way through the Passover lamb who is Christ. Now, we said that right feasting empowers right living, and right living enables right feasting. And I think it's clear that Paul has more in mind than simple eating and drinking on a physical level. He makes these commands. He says not to desire evil, not to be idolaters, not to commit sexual immorality, not to test Christ, and not to complain. For the Israelites and for Paul, Eating and drinking necessarily carried an ethic with it, a right way to live having partaken of this communal spiritual food and drink. Now, I don't want to humiliate anybody in here, but I also can't mince words. Uh, If you haven't already assumed this, whenever Exodus says the Israelites got up to party after eating and drinking in worship of the golden calf, it's not really like partying, like wearing party hats and getting some nice birthday cake, Um, getting a very large sheet cake as Ryan once did, if anyone can remember. Um, Instead, uh, if you can recall when we talked about chapters 5 through 7 of 1 Corinthians, the church at Corinth had this unique struggle with sexual immorality. 
Previously, Paul had spoken to this prohibition and given the strong sense of unity, emphasized earlier how the Israelites were all under the cloud, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Paul seems to be linking the consequences of this sexual immorality to the broader Christian community in a corporate way. In other words, friends, sexual sins do not happen in a vacuum. We see this in the Old Testament stories. The Israelites get up to play after worshiping the golden calf, and they are immediately punished for their sins, all of them corporately as members one of another. The nation was punished for the sins of some. Paul reminds us that in Numbers 25, the Israelites forsake their God to worship Baal, and they also give themselves over to sexual immorality and prostitution. 23,000 people are killed. If you were to eat in a worthy manner, you were to live in a worthy manner. And if you eat in an unworthy manner due to living in an unworthy manner, then you're going to bring judgment upon those whom you covenant with. Paul is building his case for what we will get to in 1 Corinthians 11. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. The Corinthian church was under condemnation, not because they didn't understand the gospel, but because they were abusing the gospel. The problem wasn't that they needed to be reminded to take and eat. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 11 that they were already getting together to eat and drink. But their eating and drinking wasn't a proper observance. It was clothed in sensuality. The Corinthians needed to be reminded that in order to truly eat and drink of the bread of life and the blood of Christ, to partake in a way that didn't break fellowship with God and with each other, that they had to kill their sin. They had to do away with the things of this world. They wanted to use their freedom from the law to indulge so that sin may abound all the more. But Paul makes clear that this is not an option for the Christian who seeks the kingdom of God. Paul closes his exposition here with a statement on temptation, a verse commonly quoted and commonly misunderstood, saying that no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation, he will also provide a way out so you may be able to bear it. The Corinthian problem was not a new problem. The Israelites made every outward appearance of being unified. Together they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. Together they ate the bread and drank of the water from the rock, and yet still they were stiff-necked. They did not live rightly. If we believe what Paul says, that these things are actually an example, then we can say that they looked a lot like us. They all were baptized they all shared in the Lord's Supper. They were a unified body of God's chosen people. They bore the covenant sign of circumcision, but they had not yet borne the circumcision of the heart. And so God refused to honor their feasting because they refused to honor God and their living. 
Yes, they may have been baptized, but they didn't let the baptismal waters actually signify cleansing their sin. They may have eaten of the manna from heaven, but they sought to live off that bread alone. And they drank the spiritual drink from the rock who was Christ, but they didn't receive it with a humble spirit. Instead, they tested him time and time again, asking why the Lord would not provide for them. Right feasting empowers right living, and right living enables right feasting. Let me be earnest with you guys. Um, As Ryan mentioned earlier, this week, Corey and I spent two days at the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting. It was really good for both of us, I think. Um, We got to see uh, pastor friends, seminary friends, uh, random people we know from, you know, Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Uh, We got to hear updates about all these different segments of our denomination. And for what it's worth, there were a lot of good changes instituted at the annual meeting. But what became increasingly evident during the weeks leading up to it and throughout the week while we were there is this. We aren't all that different than the Israelites. And we aren't all that different than the Corinthians. Us Southern Baptists, we may be baptized after a profession of faith, of course. And we may be doing the Lord's Supper like once a quarter if we remember to get out the serving ware. But God won't honor these collective efforts if we don't repent of our sins. On a denominational level, we have some pretty deeply rooted issues right now. We have leaders covering up instances of abuse, enabling racial divides, allowing for allegiances to political parties or candidates, undermining our allegiances to brothers and sisters in Christ. And to make sure I'm not shying away from telling you the hard truth of 1 Corinthians 10, these things don't just happen out there. They happen at First Baptist Alcoa. Hear me as clearly as you possibly can that God doesn't need the Southern Baptist Convention to spread the gospel. And God doesn't need First Baptist Alcoa. He will do it without us. Are we called to participate in this mission? Yes. Do we want the gospel to be heard in every song and every sermon, every event? Absolutely. I can think of no more worthy goal than wanting sinners who hunger and thirst for righteousness to get their fill from Christ, to meet the Jesus that we have met in the breaking of bread and the pouring out of his blood. But God can do that without us if we are unwilling to repent of our sins. In fact, God shows that he will do it without us. He shows us in the wilderness. Think of the generations that never entered into the promised land because their unrighteousness was punished. How the sins of the people were cast upon the nation of Israel corporately, How the Corinthians had fallen asleep after gathering around the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Corporately, God's people face the wrath of breaking covenant with God. Church, if we feast in an unworthy manner, on an individual level, on a church-wide level, on a denominational level, if we allow ourselves to keep living under the guise of holiness while approaching God as a stiff-necked and arrogant people, then we will not inherit the kingdom of God. The temptation is there and it is real, but together, bearing one another's burdens, we can overcome it. We do have a way out. 
Corey talked about this text some last week, and I think it's so intrinsically connected to this passage that it's worth revisiting. In John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and walks on water, and then the crowd follows him uh, on the other side of the sea from Capernaum. They ask, what can we do to perform the works of God? And Jesus' reply is simple and profound. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. They ask him for bread from heaven. And his response is the same that he offers us today. I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of one who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In John 7, Jesus echoes this sentiment. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. There are some of you who know not how deeply you need this food and drink that lasts. The bread bread of life and the blood of Christ. The free gift of salvation is given to us through the promise. It's by faith alone that we are justified according to the grace of God. And I would beg you to come find one of us, find one of our elders, find me. I don't care. I will hang out with you forever, even on Father's Day. I want to see you be saved from your sins so that you hunger and thirst no more. But there are also those of us here who are like the Israelites We have outwardly shown ourselves to be covenant members of the people of God, but we don't approach the Lord's table with a posture of repentance. You eat and you drink. We've been baptized, but we test Christ. We grumble. We commit sexual immorality. We don't live in real communion with God or with our fellow Christians. You, and like oftentimes myself, can be a stiff-necked idol worshiper. And for us, there is grace. Repentance is not a shameful thing. It is, in fact, the very essence of the gospel, worth celebrating. You can be free from your sin. You can meet Christ in the breaking of bread, which is his body. So how do we feast amidst an unfaithful culture? Let me leave you with just a few admonitions, and then I will uh, pray and, and close everything out. The way that you feast amidst an unfaithful culture is to not be like the Israelites. Do not be like the Israelites who ate of the spiritual bread and drank of the spiritual drink without actually tasting and seeing the Lord's goodness. Instead, take shelter in the rock of the incarnate Christ sacrificed for you, through whom you may ascend with Moses to see the Father. Do not be like the Israelites who passed through the waters of baptism but did not put aside their sins in doing this. Instead, slay your sin so that you may one day enter into the kingdom of God where we together will get to behold the one seated on the throne and declaring it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Do not be like the Israelites who thought they were unified in their commitment to outward rituals, but instead did not dwell with commun- in true communion with one another. Instead, seek to live peaceably among each other, seeking to advance the kingdom of Christ and bearing the burdens of one another's sins. Summing up the law of God in this, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Please uh, bow your heads, pray with me.